I'm Charlene Kay. I make music under the name Kay, and you're listening to Golden Hour, a show about Asian musicianship, creativity, and intersectional solidarity. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us again. Some of you might know that I am off Instagram right now, which feels incredible. And I highly recommend taking a hiatus for anyone who is experiencing scrolling fatigue and just social media fatigue in this time when we're already feeling really isolated. Um, It's been a great time of self-care in that way, but it has not deterred me at all from being passionate about this podcast, which I'm so grateful that y'all keep coming back to. And it's really amazing to see all of the little icons of the episodes when I go to our Spotify page and it just warms my heart to see what Dave and I have been building and we're just getting started. And so I can't wait for the following months and years of this community getting bigger and bigger and ideally becoming a resource for you to discover amazing Asian American artists, but also a resource for everyone who's been on the podcast to kind of find each other and to be able to lean on each other. I have no shortage of wonderful things to say about today's guest. Her name is Tao Win. For many years, she fronted a band called Tao and the Get Down Stay Down, who were a seminal band for me in my youth in Arizona, discovering an Asian American woman owning shit in the indie rock space, which there was no one. There was no one who looked like us. So not only did she look like us, but her music is so funky and weird, and her lyrics are truly so insightful and clever and thought-provoking and emotional. Um, She was top of mind recently because she dropped this amazing video for her single, Phenom, which has half a million views on YouTube right now. And when you watch it, you'll see why. It has some of the most mind-blowing Zoom choreography I've ever seen. I'm not really sure how else to describe it. But it is truly a milestone of what we'll probably look back on as pandemic art. I'm so grateful she was into taking the time to have this very vulnerable and open conversation with me. We talk about how her embracing her queerness and her Vietnamese heritage both led to her being much more relaxed as a creative person and a musician, which is something that we can all take to heart. The documentary Nobody Dies, in which she has a highly emotional first visit to Vietnam with her mother, meeting relatives she didn't even know she had for the first time, which is wild. And this rabid animal quality of performance she has, which is riveting and I think one of the defining qualities of her work. That was a clip of the song Phenom by Tao from her most recent album, Temple. Tao, it is so wonderful to meet you. If you don't mind, we're going to get right into the meat of this interview. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Yeah. You are such a prolific musician and such a multi-hyphenate artist. You're an activist. You're a podcast host. You're an art director. You are a dancer. I am continually inspired by how your creativity evolves. And I wanted to start by talking about your upbringing. You grew up in Virginia, and you're also first generation like me. What was your experience like in school trying to assimilate or fit in? I know your parents were Vietnamese refugees and they met when you were in North Carolina. And I'm curious what that was like for you in those early days, kind of coming into your identity a musician and how that started to, how that evolved as your career began to take off. 
I, um, you know, and, and obviously the, this past year, this past couple years, um, that's been brought into stark relief, what my upbringing was and what my awareness of my identity was, uh, especially growing up in Virginia, especially at that time, it was mid eighties, early nineties. And I didn't ever really acknowledge it, you know, and, and as I started music, I would play open mic nights and it honestly, how, I, however innocent and naive it was, and I don't know what all what kind of psychic costs were incurred, but I didn't think about it. And, mm -hmm. and I believe I was, I, I believe I did experience, no, I mean, I know I did. I experienced discrimination and prejudice and, and racist overt things and subtle things, but it, I, um, I think I harbored enough kind of internalized shame or embarrassment around it, that it, it was hard for me to acknowledge what my heritage was, what my ethnicity was. And mm -hmm. that, that coexisted with being very much a part of my family and very, um, participatory in cultural tradition, you know, so there was that familial pride, uh, but it didn't leave my home, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't leave our family so that when I was, would go to school or, uh, as I started to play music, I never brought that part of myself in. Mm -hmm. And it didn't occur to me till a lot, lot later that I, you know, I think that's what I look like uh, <laughs> definitely factored in, in that people were absorbing that just as immediately as they were the music mm -hmm. that I was performing. Did your parents ever tell you any experiences of discrimination that they had? No, never. But I witnessed a lot, you know, and that I, that is like a, a very deeply embedded, those things, the, the, the kind of um, subtle and more overt indignities that I, I witnessed or I saw them uh, experience, you know, it's part of the energy that I have on stage. It's part of the kind of uh, rabid animal yeah, thing that happens when I go on because I think it's just so deeply rooted. There's so much of that there. Um, mm -hmm. But no, they never discussed it. And it never bothered them. And I don't know if it was a combination of, you know, my mom had a laundromat that I worked in when I was young. And the way customers would treat her, you know, some of them, the way they would demean or, or degrade it, the way they would mock her, she never uh, acknowledged it. And I don't know if it was because there are just the nuances of the English language, mm -hmm. you know, the nuances of any language, that's not your primary language, you're going to miss stuff. But I caught all of that, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's tough when you're a kid, you don't know what to do. You don't know mm -hmm. um, what to do with that anger. And you don't know how to defend your family. And you don't know what to do with that sense of um, defenselessness. Yeah, you don't have the power yet. But you're you were very perceptive. You you understand what it's like to be to feel protective over your parents, even if you aren't, if you don't, you don't have the social language just yet. I can completely relate to that, mm -hmm. and my parents also have never discussed outright with me experiences of discrimination they've had, even though I've witnessed it as well. I'm glad that you mentioned 
your rabid animal energy on stage because that's something that I find so compelling about your live performance and in your music videos, um, your video for Meticulous Bird and, and Phenom, where there's something in your eyes that is just so, um, it's wild. There's something that is so joyful and rageful and cathartic at the same time. And I, I identify with the, these lyrics that you write about repressing your shame. And it's so clear that music is a way for you to deal with a, so, so much of that familial trauma and fighting for a space in this industry as a woman, as an Asian woman. The lyrics from Phenom, shamefully, shame's claim on me, led my life with, with infamy, but I don't call it, I don't solve it, I dissolve it famously. I'd love to hear about the inspiration for that song in particular and maybe Meticulous Bird as well. I kind of feel like those are twin flames of songs. Thank you. Um, you're right. Yes, Meticulous Bird, uh, Phenom, I, I consider um, the direct descendant of Meticulous Bird because it kind of, um, it carries that torch of um, a different kind of liberation and a different and a more intense. I feel like they are both um, the most direct conduits of that kind of rapidity that we've talked about. Um, Phenom is a confluence of um, a lot of different reckonings. And I think, you know, with the album Temple in general, it dealt with finally embracing and being okay with being open about not just my queer identity, but being Vietnamese, being Vietnamese American, you know, that things that I'd never, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, 15 years almost over. And this is the first album wherein I really honor and discuss my heritage, you know, and why is that? I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but starting out, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008 uh, was when I was first coming up and, and I, there were, um, just a, a lot of things that I encountered. Um, so Phenom is, you know, it uh, it was my best and sort of first effort at the creation of a different realm because I was reading um, a lot of Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin at the time. And I'm not a big speculative fiction person or, you know, or science, that realm of science fiction but those two writers, I'm a fa I'm such a fan of because there is so much more at play and there's so much um, analysis and critique and condemnation of naturally condemnable things that are, that exist. So I wanted, you know, and I wanted a chance to channel that. Um, anger and release that shame, but do it, you know, I wanted that frenetic energy. Um, and, and those, you know, the lyrics, that, that line in particular about shame, it, it's referencing um, the way I had, you know, the internalized stuff about being queer and then also about uh, my Vietnamese or my Asian identity. Yeah, I think it's a very, um, I think 
it's a pretty obvious tool of white supremacy that forces Asian Americans to be, to feel like we need to be quiet and well-behaved. Was there a moment in your life that pushed you towards rebelling against that type, that stereotype? Do you think it was over the past couple years of what our country has been reckoning with globally? Or do you think there was there a particular moment in your life where you felt like you needed to explore your heritage as a means to unlocking this new era of your musicianship? Well, addressing my heritage in particular, I had started, um, I'd wanted to do that for this album. And, but that was, you know, all, all of the writing and conceptualizing for this record happened before mm -hmm. what I would consider the most intense period that we experienced in the pandemic. So all of the, um, I had started considering all that, um, at least a couple years before, um, and that had come from processing my trip to Vietnam with mm -hmm. my mom that I'd gone, you know, I'd, I'd gone to Vietnam for the first time and um, it was her first time back in 43 years since mm -hmm. the war. And um, and that's when I had wanted, you know, I, that was the beginning of, um, of me wanting to incorporate that more. Mm -hmm. But what happened in the past year brought it to, um, I was glad, I'll say I was glad to have a vehicle like Phenom Mm -hmm. to imbue it further with, you know, exponentially more, um, <laughs> much more uh, passion and, and um, disgust and everything, you know. Yeah. I was reading about the documentary that was made with you and your mom visiting Vietnam for the first time. I'd love if you talked about that a little bit, how that came to be and what that experience was like. Sure. It was um, an incredibly intense, that the trip itself took place in 2016, but it took at least a year before I even thought about it because it was so intense. <laughs> um, but originally I had been invited um, by the U.S. Embassy in Vietnam to perform for the 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary of the normalization of relations between U.S. and Vietnam. And so I brought my band at the time and um, we had at least a few shows scheduled. And, and and then I knew I was, I would bring my mom. I would try very hard to bring her. And it took a lot mm. because I, she had uh, a lot of apprehension and a lot of misgivings. And there's so much, you know, so much um, uh, incredible trauma associated with it and sorrow. Um, so it took a while to convince her to come back. <laughs> and, but then when we did, you know, I met family. I, I didn't know I had, I, she saw a cousin who we didn't, uh, it didn't end up making it into the documentary, but there was this cousin who she grew up with. who was, they were really close and um, she didn't tell her she was coming back. And we just showed up in her yard and her cousin who I would call my aunt just, came out of the house and said, I, I, uh, I didn't think I'd see you again in this life, you know? So it was like that level of incredibly emotional, intense, um, happenings. Uh, and you know, to be in a country that, that I have such a connection to, but I've never been in, um, 
and feel as though it's that part of me and I'm part of it, but to then be, uh, to then realize I'm not, I, I wasn't raised there. I'm not, you know, I'm Vietnamese American. I'm not Vietnamese. Uh, there's a big difference. And, um, to be surrounded by the remnants of war, you know, every house we went into, every relative we went to see, there's an altar of another mm -hmm. family member mm -hmm. who died. Um, do you think it brought you and your mom closer? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. And, um, yeah, some of, you know, the most candid moments I've ever had with her happened in Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. her even referencing the war, the, you know, the basis of the song temple, when there's that bridge, um, she said, you know, why would a million dare sink in the sea? That's a paraphrase of what she, um, she asked me, you know, one night because we were talking about the ideas of freedom, which are not that subject matter is not anything that would have come up um, between us before. Yeah, I, I I had read that you the lyrics of Temple are loosely what your mom has said to you or what you imagine your mom saying to you, which is a huge act of empathy and creativity to step into somebody else's shoes and to find out what it means to you to see life through their eyes. Uh, and I'm so impressed with how the album Temple is so informed by that trip and so informed by this deepening of your relationship with your mom and A Man Alive is kind of about your relationship with your dad and exploring what it was like when he left and figuring out that what the what that relationship means to you and as somebody whose dad also uh, was not present growing up i really related to it not to mention that i i just love the production and and the lyrics i think it's a phenomenal album as i think temple is as well um i, w I was wondering if you could talk about temp um a man alive a little bit i know that it was incredibly critically acclaimed, and your friend Meryl Garbus, a.k.a. Tune Yards, produced it. I, would you be able to talk about your father and what your relationship was like with him growing up and how that evolved into the conceptualization and writing of that album? Sure. I can do that much more comfortably now, mm -hmm. a few years uh, from it, <laughs> than I could when I was promoting it. Oh, God, mm -hmm. promoting that album was so painful and hard oh my gosh and i i also want to, i also wanted to say that it, it is so commendable um how you're able to dig so deeply into these very tender like really poking at the wound kind of experiences but because you have you Thank you've you. ended up with these incredible gems that you can look back on as a token of your experience digging into what it what the meaning of this experience and these relationships are. And I, it's so clear that it's resonated deeply with other people who have gone through similar experiences. So that's all I wanted to say. I'm sorry to interrupt you before you answered your question. No problem. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. I'm, you know, things in those instances when I, I would never touch these subjects without music. So I'm grateful that there's music so that I can sort my stuff out. Otherwise, who knows, you know, I mean, 
therapy how how many years decades <laughs> bless um, therapy but uh <laughs> right <laughs> um with man alive yeah you know i um that one was such a painful one to make but i knew that i had to i i didn't necessarily want to be writing those songs but i was compelled beyond mm -hmm. my defenses um and i think at that time you know it's so funny when i was making it and then around the time of its release there was this idea that it would do something it would change something in my life and it didn't and i mean it it helped me get to a different place in a different kind of peace but it it's not like it changed my relationship with my dad there was just this incredible intensity and drive around it because it felt like i was going to there would be some kind of culmination and it was such a great lesson in real life sometimes nothing happens you know nothing people don't do what you think they should do or could do people are capable of what they're capable of you know and that was a um a really important lesson for me and and it helped me see um everything it helped me process grief and anger and um, disappointment and it helped me kind of stem the flow of constantly being hurt it helped me get to a place where i was not as sensitive mm -hmm. um so that i could move on in my life you know it was a part of moving on so that i could be more present in in my daily life Are you currently working on new music? I am. I am. It, you know, one one upside of the many upsides of tour, which uh, hasn't always been the case, and historically I've not been able to get right back into um, writing and recording when I get home from tour, is that I, um, or even try to keep up at all when I'm on tour, um, I have a, more of a clarity and calm a calmer mind now around that stuff so mm -hmm. it was really great to be out and then be excited um about making new music so that i could be out again soon and you know in the pandemic with all the time off i was able to dig a lot deeper into production and engineering so i'm i'm way more excited to demo songs now and figure stuff out because there are just more tools at my disposal now yeah i i noticed that you produced the reproduced temple, which is awesome. And it sounds it sounds so good. I'm I'm really inspired by you as someone that um I still definitely have a lot of imposter syndrome as a producer. And so I've been trying to step past that and just find things that excite me and use the tools in, in my unique toolbox to create my version of what I hear in my head. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. You know, I, f I have felt the same way and I battle that as well. And yeah, it's just so nice to know that honestly, it's whatever you think sounds good. And that's the keeper, you know? Yeah. Over the pandemic, I 
Somehow turning 34 was this different reckoning than turning 33 was. I just turned 35. Uh, and I think it was something to do with being inside all the time and being inside your own head. I went through a lot of, my body went through a lot of changes as well. I had the worst acne I've ever had, which made me question a lot about my own appearance and how much of my self-worth lies in me feeling physically beautiful and paying attention to those cues on social media that tell us what beauty is. And I was, I was thinking so much about getting older as a woman and if I'm too old to play pop music, basically, which is such a limiting belief that the entertainment industry imposes upon women. Is that something that you've ever thought about in your career? And how do you plow forward in spite of it? Um, I've thought about age as far as the sustainability of a touring lifestyle. And if, you know, as needs and wants of life and getting older and um, having a family, all that stuff, I, I start to think about it. But I, I've not thought about media in that way. And I think, or the mainstream pervasive ideas of what women should be. And I, th I, I'm really grateful. There's a certain, there's all kinds of different liberations, but to be queer mm -hmm. is to be outside of that. And, mm -hmm. and I am so grateful. I don't know. It's being older. It's seeing people who have toured for decades and are mm -hmm. still going yeah, and doing it well. And mm -hmm. um, the trajectory, the career trajectory that I want is like a Nico Case trajectory. It's it's like an Emmylou Harris who, you know, sort of musical genres and stylings aside, it's mm -hmm. a career mm -hmm. wherein, you know, that I, I don't see either of them stopping. Yeah. And there's no external force that that would be capable of stopping them. That sounds truly liberated. And I like what you say about um, how being queer sort of makes you outside of that, because it's true. It's not like you're working for the male gaze, which is so much of what the patriarchal rules of performing femininity is. Which I have done, you know, mm -hmm. to be fair, I've done it. I did it. Um, and so it's nice to, so I know what it's like to be in that vice and it's, it's really nice to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. We're just defining what feels authentic to you. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think about that every day because I'm someone who has control over how I present myself. And I think at the end of the day, it just has to be about whatever message you're trying to convey through your song. Like it has to be because of the work. And if it fits with the, with the message that you're trying to send or whatever you're trying to express, then it will be authentic no matter how you're performing mm -hmm. femininity. But yeah, it's all something mm -hmm. that, I, it's mm -hmm. all things that I'm still having an, an intense dialogue about in my head. So thank you for sharing that. For sure. I will say that, you know, I feel more comfortable performing femininity now than I did mm -hmm. before, because now that I'm more out in my career, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm lying or compromised. Mm -hmm. So in a way I've, I've you know, this last, run, I, 
I was I probably dressed in more feminine way than I have mm. in a long time. Mm. And um and probably moving forward would be happy to or would want to. I'm excited about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I and like my interest in fashion and more fashion forward things um is a lot deeper now. Yeah. Yeah, your outfit in Meticulous Bird is it's just incredible. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you look so you look so free and so yourself and your movement. You mentioned about how you feel more liberated now to perform the type of femininity that you do because you don't feel like you're lying anymore. Was there a period in your career where you did feel like you were lying in your in the presentation of yourself and how you expressed yourself? Yeah, definitely. Probably the first 14 years. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was funny. I was never out in the press, but I was out in my daily life. And it was this um, deeply injurious <laughs> navigation and um, that I had mostly with my family that um, just pressure that I felt to not be out mm. um, because of extended family, because of cultural stuff, you know. Uh, and and also all the, you know, internalized stuff that I had. So I would, I mean, as early as 2009, you know, when that's a breakup record, you know, no better learn faster. That's like a total heartbreak record. But I never said it was who it was about. And I, and I let music writers just assume it was a he and I didn't correct them. Things like that, you know, mm -hmm. that over time will um, compound and almost kill you. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like you're over the past couple of years, the intersection of your queerness and your heritage has manifested in these really beautiful records. Were you, was that a conscious decision to embrace both of those at the same time with this new record? I don't know if it was um, a conscious decision, more, uh, more so a acknowledgement that it was no longer tenable to live mm. like that. So Temple, which is the first record, you know, to address those things. Yeah, I decided to make this record, but it was because it was the way my life was unfolding and the way I wanted to move forward and I wanted to get married, all this stuff. Like I, um, it just felt like it was time and I could no longer um, abide mm -hmm. um, that life of um, the lying by omission. Yeah. How has that affected your work going forward? Oh, I think it's helped so much. I think now, you know, I, I've written incredibly intense records, um, especially the last two, because I felt like I needed, I had to address these things. And there's no way I could move forward artistically until I dug that deeply and I um, conveyed that pain or I processed it. Um, and now I, I feel much more musically inclined and mm -hmm. attentive, you know, so that now my focus, whereas before it was about the lyrical content and mining all that stuff yeah, um, to, to synthesize into song, now that energy can go into arrangements and 
trying different instruments and and delving more into theory and um, figuring out how to sequence, you know, on this one old drum machine that I found, whatever, all Mm -hmm. this, you know, now it's way more fun. Whereas before it felt um, music production and recording were so stressful to me. This is also, this is like a minor thing, but actually I I find that it's really important. Um, I have the mental clarity and calm now that I can write a song and demo it out and explore it sonically as opposed to being barely finished with the bones of it before we go into Mm -hmm. studio Mm -hmm. and then feeling the immense pressures of time and budget in the recording studio so that I'm going with decisions that I don't necessarily agree with, but don't necessarily disagree with. Mm -hmm. I think previous records have been riddled with that. Whereas where I wasn't, I hadn't taken enough time with my own music. Um, because I didn't have it, I just couldn't do it. I didn't have a, the right recording setup. I didn't have, um, again, like I said, that space and clarity to be calm enough to to go through the rigors of developing a song the way I would like to. You know, so I, I um, there are always a lot of voices in a studio, especially if you bring in an outside producer. If you have, um band members there who, you know, can be a lot and you can lose, uh, your, your sense of yourself, your musical self in it, um, quite easily. Yeah. Oh man. I, I love what you said about you feeling like you're calm for the first time in being able to create whatever you want and that you're coming out and you're digging through all of the questions that you had about your heritage has helped you open up in this way. I read a lot of books about creativity and spirituality, and it seems like the thing that keeps coming up over and over again for me is this idea that you're most receptive to whatever the universe is trying to gift you creatively if you're calm. And mm-hmm. it's harder to be in a place of inventiveness when you're stressed out or when you're withholding something or when you're not being the most truthful to yourself. And the body's intelligence is so much wiser than the brain's intelligence. And I've always Mm -hmm. found that in periods of high duress for me, um, where I wasn't sure why I felt so weird or like why I had a writing block or something, it was because I wasn't dealing with something that needed to make itself very plain to me. And as soon as I dealt with that, you know, like acknowledged that this thing I was saying was okay, really wasn't okay, or, you know, Mm -hmm. modifying or ending this or that relationship, or um, just being clear about what I wanted and establishing boundaries was when I had the biggest breakthroughs. So you produced your last record with your bandmate uh, from Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, who you've worked with for 15 years or so. But I just noticed that you announced that Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down is dissolving. What does going solo right now mean to you and why this change right now? I think, uh, you know, it was um, an issue of timing and what I have learned this past year and a half, um, the, the direction that I want to go in, in making my next records, sort of the next phase of my career. Um, I always had full control of 
of the band. It, it's more of the dissolution of the name is important in signifying um, the next phase. And, uh, and it, you know, I performed under that name for so long that there are certain connotations. You know, I was a lot more interested in folk and country when I first started and I've evolved, you know, I not evolved, but I, my interests are greater. And I find that it's easier for me to make the kind of music I want to make now without, um, the history of that moniker, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot more emotion and intensity in what I want to make, even though I, I love a good, sad, danceable song I, that all, will always happen. But I found that with the shows, there was sometimes an overriding party vibe where it made it harder to incorporate other songs in my catalog that are important to me or that I wanted to to perform live but couldn't necessarily manipulate the energy enough to get it to, you know. And I think it just was the right time um, given where I want to go. But sonically, I mean, as I said, I you know, digging into production more and I, I want, it will always be, you know, the music I make moving forward as Tao will always be full band, full rabid animal thing, you know. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> Please don't ever oh, lose thanks. that. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I, I, there's, I, yeah, I, I don't think I could. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait for your next show. I will, I will be there being rabid in the front row right along with you. Well, Tao, this has been so wonderful. I really appreciate your time. I have nothing but the deepest respect and admiration for you, and I'm so excited to see what you do going forward. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again, Tao, for joining us. You can find her on Instagram at Tao Get Down, Stay Down. Don't forget to check out her most recent record, Temple, which is available now on all streaming platforms. This show is created by me and produced and edited by Dave Yim. You can follow us on Instagram at Golden Hour Pod, and you can send us thoughts on any of these episodes by emailing us at goldenhourwithk at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>